Thank you, Michael. And I, I'd like to have us open to our text for this morning, um, which is actually different than the one that's in your worship folders. It's John chapter 15, verses 26, and then we're going to actually read into chapter 16 um, all the way to verse 15. So John chapter uh, 15. And uh, we're continuing a sermon series here uh, that we've been looking at the last number of weeks, um, looking at the promised land, but more than that, actually, the presence of God with his people. And so we've been tracing that theme throughout scripture, and we'll continue to do that this morning. So John uh, chapter 15, verse 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. By the way, I should have mentioned this is Jesus speaking here. He says to his disciples, And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when those who kill you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you will see me no more. And about judgment, because the prince of this world stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we've all heard the phrase, less is more. Um, the idea is that sometimes having less of something is actually better than having more of it. Uh, the thing about that, though, is that it kind of depends on what you're talking about, right? Take money, for example. Is less money more? I've actually heard this argued both ways. Uh, for instance, I've heard some people argue quite convincingly that less money is indeed more because it leads to less stress, leads to a simpler kind of life, and leads to the freedom to focus on other more important things. On the flip side, though, I've heard others argue the exact opposite, often for the same reasons. They say when you don't have enough money that life isn't actually simple at all. It's more stressful, not less, and if you don't have enough money, you certainly don't feel very free. Same thing goes for housing, right? Is less more? Well, the answer is yes, if you're thinking about things like yard work, um, cleaning, and price, but the answer is no, if you're thinking about things like throwing parties, or storage, or having 10 kids. What about sermons? Is less, more? let's not actually go there. Um, <laughs> 
What's interesting, though, is that we actually see that same debate over whether less is more here in our passage this morning. The only difference, though, is that this time, instead of money or housing or sermons, the subject of the debate is actually Jesus himself. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that we're actually smack dab in the middle of Jesus' last uh, sermon to his disciples. A few chapters before this, at the end of uh, John chapter 13, it becomes clear that Jesus knows he's about to be taken away from his disciples. And so as they're sitting together around the Last Supper, Jesus decides to give them a final crash course in everything that he wants them to remember once he's gone. The ensuing sermon ends up lasting four chapters, and here in chapters 15 and 16, we're getting towards the end of it. And I'll be honest, uh, as far as sermons go, this isn't exactly the most encouraging one, um, at least on the surface. For instance, Jesus starts things out in chapter 13 by predicting his betrayal. Right after that, he tells Peter that he's going to deny him. And then here in chapters 15 and 16, he tells his, his disciples to expect persecution once he's gone. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 2 says, They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. So Jesus is talking about betrayal, denial, religious discrimination, and martyrdom. And again, as final sermons go, it's not exactly the most hopeful. But the kicker is that Jesus isn't even done yet. Because in verses 4 through 5, he adds one more bummer to that list. He tells his disciples, I did not tell you all this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going back to him who sent me. You see, not only are the disciples going to experience everything that Jesus is telling them here, not only will they witness his betrayal, deny him, and then eventually deal with discrimination and threats because of their faith in him, but they're also going to have to do all of that without him, too. Jesus tells his disciples here that he's going to leave them. He's going to return to his Father. He's going to go back to where he came from. He's going to leave them to continue his work, but he's going away. And then on top of all of that, in verse 7, Jesus actually tells them that it's better this way. It's better that he goes It's better that he leaves them. It's for their own good. He says to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. In other words, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that less of him is actually more. His absence is better than his presence. Not having him around is better than having him around. And yet, if I'm one of his disciples here, I think as I'm listening to this from Jesus, I'm struggling to understand how that could be the case. How does that make sense? How is having less of Jesus actually more? Given everything that they've come to know and believe about Jesus, how is it possibly better for his disciples here that Jesus is going away? I think that's something we still wonder about today. Um, At least it's something I know I still wonder about. Uh, I've done a lot of mixers in my life. You know what mixers are, right? They're those sort of get-to-know-you activities that you do at things like school events, youth group retreats, summer camps, college orientation weeks, and so on and so forth. The leader asks you some sort of goofy question or, or has you fill in the blank on some sort of statement like, hi, my name is Brandon, and my da- favorite deep-fried appetizer is, and then fill in the blank, right? Two truths and a lie is another one. 
One of my favorites, though, is the question, if you could have coffee with any historical figure, anyone living or dead, who would it be? I always felt like that question, people's answer to it, gave me a pretty good idea of, of who they were and, and what sorts of things they were interested in. Um, for me, I'd usually pick Jesus. You know, every once in a while I'd mix it up and say someone like Abraham Lincoln instead. But now that I'm a pastor, I basically have to pick Jesus. You know, because if I say anything else, people go, oh, I would have thought you would have said Jesus. You know, because you're a pastor and all. Um, I think the reason I used to pick Jesus was because I had a whole bunch of questions for him. Now, that's why I wanted to have coffee with them. I had all sorts of questions that I wanted to ask. And truth be told, a lot of them were left over from when I was a, a kid growing up in the church. It was stuff like, why did you create spiders? They're scary and gross, and I'm sure you could have found a better way to accomplish what they do. But some of them were more serious. And there were questions like, why do some people go to heaven and others go to hell? When are you coming back? And what do you want me to do with my life. I had a whole list. The older I get, though, the less I actually think about those questions. Um, they're still interesting to me. I still wonder about them from time to time, especially the spider one. Um, but to tell you the truth, if I actually did have the chance to spend a couple of hours over coffee with Jesus, I think what I would want to do instead, instead of asking all those questions that I have, would just be to listen to him. I think I would want to hear him talk about whatever it is that he wants to talk about. I think I would want to just sit and learn from him like his disciples in scripture did. And I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one. Um, I'm willing to bet that some of you would probably feel the same way, right? As Christians, how amazing, how wonderful would that be? Just to, to spend a day with Jesus, even just a couple of hours, and learn from him. And if that's the case, if that's something that we would want and enjoy and appreciate as his people, then why is it that Jesus says he has to go away here? Why is it that he has to leave? And why is it that he tells his disciples, including us as his disciples today, that it's actually better this way? That it's actually for our good? Why does Jesus say here that having less of him is actually more? Well, the answer, put simply, is the Holy Spirit. He's the reason Jesus needs to go. He's the reason Jesus says that he needs to leave. He's the reason Jesus tells his disciples that he can't stay with them anymore. In verse 7, Jesus says, Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate is another name for the Holy Spirit. And he's the reason why Jesus is going to leave. If Jesus stays, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if he goes, he will. And from what Jesus says here, it's clear that he actually thinks that that's the best option. It's better that he leave and that the Spirit come. The question for us is why? Why? Why is that better? Why is having the Spirit better? Why should we want the Spirit instead of Jesus? Why is having the Spirit preferable to having Jesus himself? Well, the answer actually has everything to do with what we've been talking about in this sermon series these last couple of weeks. 
We've been calling this series a promised land, but as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we actually looked at the promised land and, and looked at 1 Kings 8, what the Old Testament promised land was really about was God's presence with his people. And so again, we've sort of been tracing that theme throughout scripture. For instance, back in the beginning when God created us, he made us to live in relationship with him and enjoy his presence. That's what we see Adam and Eve do in the first couple chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Um, and that's what we were actually made for too. We were made to have that kind of relationship with God, the kind of relationship that we might have with, with a good friend or a spouse. Our relationship with him was meant to be a relationship of mutual love and trust and joy and respect. But our sin ruined that. It distorted our relationship with God and put distance between us. And when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they introduced something into their relationship with God that fractured that relationship and split it apart. And suddenly, rather than running towards God, Adam and Eve ran from him. Rather than living in his presence, they actually hid from him. And the sad fact of the matter is that as sinful human beings, we have been running from and hiding from God ever since. That's the effect of our sin on our relationship with him. And yet, as we've talked about, God was determined to fix that. And so as we've seen, God started to call people back to himself, back into relationship with him, back into his presence. First, it was individuals like Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Then it was a whole group of people, the Israelites, First, he met with them at Mount Sinai, like we saw a few weeks ago. Then he traveled with them in the wilderness with the tabernacle. And finally, he settled with them in the promised land in the temple. Ultimately, though, like we saw last week, God chose to become present among us as his people in a new way. In the first chapter of this gospel, we read how John tells us that the Logos, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, just like God was present with his Old Testament people at different times and in different ways, what John is telling us is that God had become present with us again. This time, though, instead of, of simply coming to us or being with us, living among us, he actually became one of us. And yet another example of his grace, God had yet again worked to reach out to and reestablish his relationship with us as his people. And that's why we make such a big deal out of Jesus as Christians. That's why we worship and revere him. That's why we believe everything that we do about him. Because as the incarnate son of God come down to earth, we believe that in Jesus, God has given us his presence in a new way. We've run away from him. We've hidden from him. We've rebelled against him and rejected him. And yet he never gave up on us. Instead, he came down to us, became one of us, and was present with us just like he was in the beginning. That, uh, by the way, is part of why we can't forget about Jesus' 33 years here on earth. We don't talk about those 33 years, Jesus' life here on earth enough. Uh, you know, often, I think as Christians, when we talk about the gospel, we skip straight from Christmas to Easter. And we go right from Jesus' birth to his death and resurrection. We sort of forget about everything else in between. But those 33 years when Jesus walked here on earth, they matter. They matter a lot, actually. 
Because during those 33 years, the fact is that God himself walked and talked with us, lived among us, and was present with us as one of us. That is a radical thought. If that's true, and I believe that it is, then that changes everything that we know about God, the world, religion, what our relationship with him ought to look like. It changes everything. And yet here in our passage this morning, Jesus tells his disciples he's going away again. He can't stay. He's leaving. And so the question becomes again, what will happen with God's presence among us? Is that going away again too? Are we suddenly back to square one all over again? Genesis 3, the fall into sin, losing the presence of God. That's the tension here in this text. That's the drama. That's the uncertainty and anxiety underneath everything here in John 15 and 16. After centuries of working to reestablish his presence with his people, is God now suddenly taking it away? Well, not exactly. Because you see, even though Jesus is no longer going to be physically present with us, even though he's not staying here on earth with us, even though we can't go down the street and you know, grab a coffee with him at Wild Roast, the fact of the matter is that we still have God's presence with us. We still have him living among us. We still have his nearness and closeness to us because as Jesus promises us here, we will actually have his Holy Spirit living in us. And again, that's why Jesus tells his disciples that it's for their good he's going away. That's why he says it's better for them. That's why he tells them that less of him is actually more. Because once he goes, yes, they'll lose his physical presence among them. But they'll gain his spiritual presence with them all the time. Jesus is going away, yes. He's ascending back to his father. That's actually what we celebrated this past Thursday on Ascension Day. He's leaving his disciples. And yet the fact of the matter is that he's not leaving them alone. Nor has he left us as his disciples today alone either. Instead, he's left us with his spirit to instruct, teach, and continue to guide us as we go about his work here in the world. And that brings up an important point. It brings up an important point about the nature of our work for God's kingdom. And in order to illustrate that, I'd like to tell you a little story. Um, back when I was growing up, I used to spend a lot of time with my dad in the garage. Uh, my dad's a bit of a car guy, and so on the weekends, he loves nothing more than to be out there with the cars, working on them, washing them, sometimes just staring at them and slowly drooling. Um, loves cars. Whenever he was out there, though, um, I would always be out there with him. I don't think I was much help. In fact, I know I wasn't. Uh, but whenever my dad was in the garage, whatever he was doing, changing the oil, replacing the brakes, checking the fluids, I was out there too, just talking and hanging out with him. That changed when I turned 16, though. Soon after my birthday, I bought my first car. It was a 1994 Candy Apple Red Pontiac Grand Am. It was also a piece of junk. Um, I think I ended up putting as much money into that car just to keep it running as I originally paid for it. But for Christmas that year, my dad gave me a gift to use on my car. He gave me my own set of tools. He said, if you're going to have a car, you've got to take care of it. So you need some tools. First up was an oil change. And so the next day, the day after Christmas, 
we went out to the garage, pulled my car in, jacked it up, and got it ready for the job. And that's when my dad surprised me. He said, I'm going to go into my office, uh, do a bit of work. I'll stop back out in a little while to see how you're doing. I said, what? I thought you were going to help me. He said, you've seen me do this dozens of times. You've been out here in the garage every time that I've changed the oil myself. But you'll never learn to do it unless you actually do it yourself. You know what to do. You've seen me do it. You've got everything that you need. I think you can. And he was right. And I think that's part of what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in this text. I think it's, it's more or less what he still says to us as his disciples today, too. You see, just like my dad leaving me to learn how to change the oil in my car, if Jesus didn't go, if he didn't ascend back to his Father, if he didn't leave us to continue his work here on earth, then I'm not sure we would. I'm not sure we would have done that work. I'm not sure we would have learned how to be his people or serve as his church. I'm not sure we even would have tried. Instead, I think we would have just let him keep doing it. And yet that's not what he wanted. That's not what he saved us for. And that's not what he's called us to either. Instead, as his people, remember I said those are amens last week, okay? Instead, as his people, God has called us to actually live like his people. He's called us to be his witnesses. And he's called us to go about the work and mission that he has given us as his church. He's called us to be his representatives. And as he says here in this text, to testify in both word and deed to who he is and what we believe to be true about him. Just like I had to take that gift of those tools that my dad gave me and put them to use, we have to take the gift that God has given us in the Holy Spirit and put it to use too. He sent us his spirit. He sent us his spirit to empower us, to lead and guide us, and maybe most importantly, to continue his presence among us as we go about everything that he's called us to. Jesus has left, yes, but he has not left us on our own. He hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left us without his presence and nearness. Instead, he has left his spirit with us. In fact, he has left his spirit in us. That does bring up the question, though. If we're down here going about Christ's work with the power and help of his spirit, then where is he and what is he doing? Well, I think most of us here this morning actually know the answer to that question. At least if you've ever recited the Apostles' Creed, then you do. How's it go? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and then here it is. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Where did Jesus go when he ascended? Take his seat at the right hand of his Father. You know, I never, I never thought much about that line, he is seated at the right hand of God, until I read a book by Kevin DeYoung on the Heidelberg Catechism a few years ago. 
It's called The Good News We Almost Forgotten. In one chapter, DeYoung talks about what the Catechism has to say about the Apostles' Creed, including this line. And this is what he writes. He says, It's striking imagery if you think about it. Picture an attorney making his closing arguments to the jury, and then after a crescendo of rhetoric, he says, I rest my case, and sits down next to his notes. Or think of a mom who has no time for herself all day. She's made meals, cleaned the house, changed diapers, folded clothes, helped with homework, played in the backyard, raced to the grocery store, and now finally has the kids snoozing in their beds. She walks wearily down the stairs, and for the first time since she woke up 14 hours ago, she sits down. DeYoung goes on. In both examples, sitting down is more than an act of rest. It is an act of completion. All that was necessary has been accomplished. That's why it's thrilling to think that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It means his work is finished. He accomplished all that was needful for our salvation. And having shown himself to be the victor over sin, death, and the devil, it is given to him to sit not in any old place, but at the place of honor and exaltation at God's right hand. All things have been placed under his feet, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that's the gospel, my friends. Jesus' job is finished. His work is done. His salvation is accomplished. He has come among us, been present with us, lived with us, taught us, proclaimed the gospel to us, and invited us to be citizens in his kingdom. Most importantly, though, he took our place on the cross. He died for us, and he made possible for us to have new life through his resurrection. Having done all of that, he ascended back to his father and sat down at his right hand where he will remain until he comes again. And yet even though his work is done, as his people, ours is not. It continues. Jesus has left, but we are still here. He has ascended, but we remain on earth. He has gone back to his father, but we represent our father still. We are not alone in that work, though. We have his spirit, the very presence of God himself, dwelling within us, dwelling in our hearts, and empowering us as we continue his work as his people. And so, no, we don't still have Jesus with us physically, the way that the first disciples did. But we do continue to have his abiding presence with us nonetheless. And as it turns out, until he comes again, that's actually all we need. In fact, as Jesus himself tells us, it's actually for our good this way. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, it's actually only because of your spirit that we can do what we're doing right now, that we can worship, that we can open your word together, that we can pray. It's only because of your spirit that we can witness to our friends and family members, to those who are unbelievers. It's only because of your spirit that we can send missionaries like Tony and Stacy and the others that we support to other places in the world to do your work. It's only because of your spirit that we can do anything for your glory and your kingdom. Thank you for leaving us with your spirit. Thank you for empowering us as your people, and we pray that you will continue to do that each and every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.